But, but, but that's not fair. That's what Ava Wong, a Stanford-trained lawyer turned stay-at-home mom, said when she learned about a counterfeit handbag scheme cooked up by her ex-college roommate. Today, we'll be discussing superfake handbags, fussy toddlers, and confronting the model minority myth when we talk with Kirsten Chen, author of Counterfeit. How's it going? Welcome back to the podcast. We hope you're all doing great out there. Uh, really excited to talk to today's guest, Kirsten. One, because we really love her book. And second, she knows Emily. She was Emily's mentor over at USF. And so let me introduce Emily again to you guys. Uh, it is Emily Huang. She is an author from San Francisco and a former student of mine. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Hey, Curtis. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for a conversation. Always great to have you. You, you kind of tricked me a little bit. I was asking you for books that we might want to do for the pod or authors we, we might want to have on the podcast. And you said, oh, Kirsten Chan has this new book coming out. And I was like, okay. So I, I messaged Kirsten and then I found out that she was at USF uh, teaching in the MFA program. And I was like, do you know her? And, and Emily was like, yeah, she's my mentor. So you kind of tricked me. You didn't tell me that you knew her. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I felt a little weird about it, but I like had kind of like she'd been a mentor during my thesis program like a couple years back. And I like had seen on Twitter that her debut book was coming out. So I thought maybe or not debut. Sorry. Um, a new book. is her coming new book. Out, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she's great. We, I, I want to read all her stuff now. She's written some some interesting and they're all so different. So I want to I want to get both of her other books. Yeah, so you've been up to much. You've been writing or reading. Uh, what you been up to? Yeah, I've been reading a lot, um, trying to write, and unfortunately, I caught COVID, so I'm also recovering oh. from that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, at this point, who hasn't had COVID? <laughs> <laughs> so, just do, are you working on a novel? Or are you doing more short stories? Yeah, so I'm working on a short story collection right now. Um, I got accepted into a residency in September, so I'm trying to oh, prepare wow. for that. Yeah, fun. So thanks again for coming along, Emily. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Sure. And we have a special guest today. It's a local author, Kirsten Chen. You've written three novels, Soy Sauce for Beginners, Bury What You Cannot Take, and her latest is called Counterfeit. Kirsten also teaches creative writing up at USF, and it turns out that Emily was one of your mentees. That's right. We worked together on her thesis. It was very good. Oh, yeah, I need to read it. I need to read some of Emily's stuff. So let's do a little background about you, Kirsten. Uh, you said you're born in Singapore. What was your childhood like in Singapore? That's a, that's a hard question. I would say it was fairly idyllic. Uh, Singapore is a very, all the stereotypes are true. It's extremely safe. It's extremely clean. Uh -huh. uh, but at the same time, it is a major cosmopolitan city. So there's incredible food. There's incredible arts and culture. There's incredible, you know, skyscrapers, like all the kind uh -huh. of things that you would look for in a city. I enjoyed growing up there. I mean, I think when I was a child, the school system, so Singapore is rightly very well known for its public school system, uh -huh. um, which is extremely rigorous. And I think that I credit that with my work ethic and my grit. I think a lot of that uh -huh. comes from growing up in Singapore. Um, at the same time, when I was a kid in Singapore, writing, literature, the humanities, those were not subjects mm -hmm. that were highly valued. They were kind of considered... Um, 
you know, if you were really good at math and science, then you could also do, <laughs> you could also study literature, but uh -huh. it was definitely not a stand-in, right? Your intelligence was kind of gauged by according to how good you were at math and science. And I think it's, it's changed quite a bit. You know, I was in school in Singapore in the 80s and 90s. So that was a long time ago. So, you know, like everything, uh, there is good and there is bad. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I've heard there's a little bit of a handbag culture in Singapore as well. Oh. Yes, that's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is a very cosmopolitan city. I think like a lot of kind of major Asian cities, people care a lot about their appearance. People care a lot about um, status symbols in a way that we don't see in the Bay Area. Uh -huh. The Bay Area might be the one major city that is quite immune to, <laughs> you know, designer handbags in the way that even Manhattan, you know, New York yeah. is much flashier yeah. than, than we are. Mm -hmm. I went to I went to France and I, I stayed on the outskirts of France and so outskirts of Paris, and there was a mall there with all the brand names that you recognize, and my wife and I were there and we were looking around and there were a lot of Asians, and it turns out it was a it was an outlet mall and so they had Coach they had Burberry they had Givenchy you know they had Hermes. oh yeah yeah and there and there were there were quite a few uh Asian women loading up on handbags and it, it it's something that like you said I didn't grow up look noticing handbags and and whatnot but yeah it, it's a whole subculture that absolutely this book kind of touches on a little bit so <laughs> we'll we'll get into that so Stanford was a big part of the backstory for Ava and Winnie. You went there as an undergrad. Um, what's, what was your time like at Stanford? Um, Stanford. I think very fondly of Stanford. I think it is one, just kind of my empirical research, I think it is one of the most uh -huh. beloved schools. Like I think when you talk to alumni, most people have a very positive a positive, they have very positive memories of going to school there. I mean, I, it's, <laughs> it's sunny, it's a beautiful mm -hmm. campus, it's relatively laid back compared to a lot of the other kind of comparably tiered or comparably ranked schools. But it, I went to I went to Stanford at an interesting time. I started in 1999, which was the dot the first dot com boom, and I remember every single person who graduated that year went to. <laughs> went to work in tech regard, you know, didn't matter what your major was, you went and started yeah, during yeah. the startup. Even then I could tell that it was, it was a heady time and that this was not a typical experience, but it was really interesting for that reason, you know, and now that I've lived here for almost uh, 15 years, I think in total, I've seen the cycles, you know, and now we're, you know, in yet sure. another one of these cycles. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. You're yeah, a part of history. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk a little more about the the women in your novel as they went to Stanford as well as as you wrote them. Um, we loved, uh, I loved all the San Francisco little Easter eggs that you threw in here. A little, little Noe Valley, a little threw a nod to Fairlawn, rest in peace, Fairlawn restaurant, <laughs> and uh, a little. You have the little. Uh, what would you call it? a little warehouse slash office space in South San Francisco, oh, no. a little, little office park in South City? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's super fun. I'm glad you paid a little homage to our city here. When did you move to San Francisco? Well, I moved for school um, in 1999. Uh, and then I lived in the city for two and a half years after I graduated, um, moved east for graduate school, and then as soon as I could, came back in 2011, <laughs> and I have been here ever since. For that temperate weather. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, great. When you were in college, did you know you wanted to be a professional writer? 
Not at all. Not at oh, all. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, um, I majored in comparative literature, which is an extremely impractical major. I think we can all agree <laughs> on that. But I also think, and, and Emily, you maybe can weigh in here. I think that I was maybe the last generation of college students that was told, um, if you go to a good school, you can major in whatever you want and you can still get a practical job. Mm. You know, and I don't think that uh, college students now, certain, you know, even a decade ago, were told that, mm. you know, when I visit high schools and stuff, everybody talks about the importance of majoring in STEM and, mm-hmm. you know, how, you know, how that is the future. Um, and school has gotten increasingly more expensive. And so there isn't this approach of like, you know, take your time, learn what you want, you know, explore a couple majors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I went to Stanford, I majored in comp lit, and then I came out and got a practical job. I was a merchandise planner at Banana Republic. Okay. <laughs> um, I thought I wanted to work in fashion, but I never intended to be a writer. I don't think it even occurred to me that that was possible when I was an undergrad. Was there any resistance from your parents when you decided to go into writing? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and not, you know, not any shade to them. I mean, um, my parent, my mother is a professional musician. And in some ways, I think she knew how hard it was to make it. And so she was in some ways the most worried of my parents. But I mean, sticking a step back, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a good decision. I was leaving a, a well-paying, very stable job to get an MFA with, you know, and even the most talented writer has no guarantees, as as we all know, right? It is just one of those jobs where a very small number make it and there is so much luck involved. And so I don't blame them, you Mm -hmm. know? Like when people ask me about Mm -hmm. getting an MFA, I say, you know, I wouldn't recommend, you know, even looking back, even now that I know that I, uh, I have published three novels and I am making this my career, I wouldn't say it was the right decision. (laughs) I still think of it as a reckless decision. I'm just, you know, very lucky that it worked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were uh, we were just talking to Waiki Wang a little while ago too, and similar story where she's like, her parents are like, I don't know, but then as long as Waiki said, you know, I will I will tutor, I will do whatever I need to to never ask for money from my parents, you know. Yeah, and, and she was in a PhD program too, so even yeah, stakes were even time. higher, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your first novel comes out in 2014. It's called Soy Sauce for Beginners. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but it takes place in San Francisco and Singapore. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it's a little bit of a coming of age, a little bit of a understanding yeah. your family. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's centered around an artisanal soy sauce factory. That's the last of its kind. It's a family business fighting to stay alive. Um, and the, the main character um, is a young Singaporean woman who believes she's escaped the family business and then due to a series <laughs> of circumstances is pulled back home and has to kind of grapple with the things that she thought she'd left behind. Yeah, definitely adding that to my list. <laughs> and then in 2018, you wrote a different kind of novel. It's uh, Bury What We Cannot Take. It's historical fiction, which I love. So I'm definitely going to read this one as well. And it takes place kind of around the 1950s in Maoist China and three generations uh, dealing with changing times. Is that is that a good Yeah, summer? that's exactly right. Um, it's um, centered on one particular family that is forced to flee very quickly and is forced to leave a child behind in China as proof of their intention to return. So yes, as you said, a very different book, much heavier, much mm. a book that required an incredible amount of research. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I read I read this blurb that it was in that time that you're neck deep in this research of 1950s Maoist China, and you're like, you know what? The next book I write is going to be about <laughs> something that I know something about. So I'm going to go handbags. Is this, yeah. is this, this is a true story? This is what happened? Oh, it is absolutely true. You know, by now, um, I can unequivocally say that every novel is in a way a reaction to the book that came before it because it's a five year, you know, you, you yeah. put your, your whole life into for five years or however long it takes, yeah. you're kind of focused on this one project. And so, you know, when I was touring for my first novel, Soy Sauce for Beginners, um, the number one question that I got when I went on the road was people would say, well, um, is this an autobiographical story? And does your family own a soy sauce factory? Because I Googled it and I couldn't find it. And I would like to try the soy sauce. And I got so tired of answering this question that I think subconsciously I thought, well, I'm going to write historical fiction. And nobody can ask me if the protagonist is me because I wasn't born in 1950s, right? And so, you know, and then similarly, subconsciously, I said, you know, I'm tired of... Um, feeling like a phony. That was really the hardest part was, you know, acknowledging that I would never be able to know everything there was to know about 1950s China. And I would have to go ahead and write the book uh, mm -hmm. anyway, because people devote their whole lives to studying this time period. Right. And mm -hmm, if, if mm -hmm. I uh, let myself just research, I would never write the novel. And so, yes, or as a reaction to that, I said, you know, next book, I'm going to write about something I already know about. And there are not that many things that I already, that I'm considering <laughs> myself an expert in. And handbags happens to be one of them. But of course, the novel grew into um, this kind of counterfeit handbag crime caper. Um, and that ended up requiring a whole different, uh, <laughs> right, a whole different set of research because I did not actually know anything about counterfeit handbags. Yeah, yeah. So you said that just about that time that you're getting into doing a little light night research into handbags, this article comes out in what is it, the Washington Post? Mm -hmm. Exactly. What, so this is a, this is a true story about this counterfeit scheme. This oh yes, it's absolutely true. So this article um, detailed uh, this real life con artist who had you know, for years uh -huh. gone undetected because she had this seemingly foolproof scheme. And yes, when I read that scheme, it was oh, yeah. <laughs> so good that I was like, this belongs in a novel. Yeah. And then that was when I really, you know, seriously started to think about counterfeit as, as a story that could really have legs. Yeah. And so you got a grant to go to, to Guangzhou <laughs> and you, you fly over there and start looking into factories. What was that like? It was fantastic. I mean, it, I don't think I could have written the novel without it, you know? Uh -huh. um, uh, yes. So the timing was fortuitous. Um, I happened to be um, in residency at a university in Singapore uh, where I was working on the first draft of this book. And Singapore is very close to Guangzhou and Hong yeah. Kong. So it was a three hour flight. It, you know, the barriers were low. So yeah. I took the opportunity. I went, I mean, even going into this kind of giant shopping mall that where all these counterfeit handbags were sold, even that was kind of um, an indelible image. I remember like looking at this mall filled with illegal merchandise <laughs> and then right in front of it was a police kiosk uh -huh. with this young policeman who was smoking a cigarette outside of this like makeshift trailer <laughs> police station um and that to me just captured the kind of paradox yeah. of china of the counterfeit handbag system this mm -hmm. idea of uh, illicit and uh you know legal and illegal coexisting side by side yeah. um, and the kind of fragile ecosystem that supports it all. Yeah. Um, and that is an image that I think 
stuck with me through the entire writing of the book, you know, capturing, and I made it my goal to, to yeah. capture mm-hmm. the complexity of that. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but yeah, that's, it's, a, that's a great story. So that leads us to June 7th of this year <laughs> when you released your third novel counterfeit and man, is this, has this book taken off for you? Did you anticipate that? Did you feel like, oh, this is a really good book. I think it's going to make some lists or what, what was your thought going into this? I mean, the thing is, is that you never know. I yeah. mean, yes, we had some clues, you know, like uh, we find out, you know, I found out about the uh, Reese's Book Club pick, for instance, uh-huh. which is um, a huge, huge honor. Um, uh, publicity happens kind of in the mm-hmm. months leading up to publication. So you have a good sense, but even so, you just never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Like sometimes you can get a lot of publicity and the sales don't quite match. You know, there's just kind of, sometimes things don't line up. Um, but then also because this is my third book, um, I understand very much that publicity isn't always, uh, an indication of quality uh, of writing. Like there's a lot sure. of other things like, you know, <laughs> what readers want to read about in that moment, or, yeah. you know, there's just so many things out of a writer's control. So mm-hmm. I, I actually feel quite appreciative to have that perspective, you know, and that because it, the book is done phenomenally and I'm very grateful for it, but I'm, I'm also grateful that it happened with my third book and not necessarily with my debut when I think it would have been more overwhelming mm-hmm. and harder to have a sense of perspective. Yeah. So I, we didn't set that up very well. So we should say that Counterfeit was picked for Reese Witherspoon's book club's pick of the month in June. And then right after that, you make the New York Times bestsellers list number five. on that. That's Can you... Can you go back in time and talk to your old self and say, hey, someday I'm going to be top five on the New York Times bestseller list. What would that conversation be like if you had to talk to yourself? You know, I would say to myself, don't get too big for your britches. That's right? true. Like, it's That's not, true. And, and, I, and I feel this deeply. Um, that is not something I achieved. That is something that was gifted to me. Right. You know, right. like same with the book club pick. It is like winning the lottery, right? Yeah. I'm proud of my book. I, I worked really hard on it and I think it's a good book, but there are thousands of books that could have yeah. been the June yeah. pick, right? It is. And I feel the same thing about making the New York Times list. If anything, that is something my team, my publishing team can take, you know, my marketing team, my publicity team, my editor, they should be really proud of that. But, you know, for me, I didn't earn that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like the book is the book. Um, it didn't get I, better. You know, just it, because it's it, the same yeah. book. It's the same exact book yeah, that, yeah. that, you know, and so I, I think that is, um, I, I would caution myself, do not mistake the publishing process for the writing process, right? Publishing is right. a blip in the writing life. Yeah, yeah. And it, it has kind of a short memory too, right? Because, yeah. you know, next year it's going to be like, well, what am I writing now? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we're going to highly recommend this book. This is the infatuation pick of the month. <laughs> we're gonna, Love it. We're going to recommend this book as well. Super fun. <laughs> it's a great summer read. Uh, Emily, how long did it take you to read? A couple days, right? It literally just took me a weekend. I completely devoured it so fast. Yeah. Small enough to fit in a carry-on bag on your flight <laughs> to somewhere this summer. Bring it to the beach, right? It's a classic kind of summer. It's fun. So it's one of those books that... I think we'll we'll do real well. So congratulations on all that. 
Uh, Kirsten, do you mind giving us a quick summary of the book? I, I don't want to mess it up. Yeah, sure. Um, so Counterfeit is the story of two Asian American women who band together to grow a counterfeit handbag scheme into a global enterprise, shattering the model minority myth along the way. Um, the main character, Ava Wong, is a straight-laced, rule-abiding lawyer who gets pulled into her old college roommate's counterfeit handbag crime ring. Um, and eventually their enormous success is threatened. And at that point, uh, her roommate Winnie, her former roommate Winnie disappears, leaving Ava to face the consequences. Uh-huh. Okay. So <laughs> real quick, Emily, what was your first impression of the book? I gave mine already. Yeah, I had such a good, fun time reading this book. Um, it was a quick read. I really loved all the characters and found myself like really liking Ava and Winnie. It was just, it was a really well done book. Thank you. Yeah, no, my wife just started, you know, I've been reading some other books and and my wife asked for one to read. I said, oh, you're going to like this one. So <laughs> this is one that I had no doubt that she liked. And she's about halfway through and, and she's loving it so far too. So everyone out there, get a copy of this book. Go to your local bookstore. Uh, Kirsten, you got a favorite San Francisco bookstore? Um, we're so blessed to have great bookstores. I love the Booksmith, obviously. Um, they've been... Uh, they're tr- just a tremendous bookstore. They have great events. Um, Green Apple is fantastic uh-huh. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, we have some good ones in San Francisco. So everyone grab a copy of this book, uh, bring it along with you on your next trip or just read it at home. Uh, we're going to get into the plot and a little more. So I want to throw out a spoiler alert to anyone out there. If you haven't read this book, uh, go read it before you listen to us talk about it. Usually we play a little song to let people know to get away from their devices <laughs> before we spoil it. Um, I saw a fun little playlist that you'd made for your publisher. Let's see, Kirsten, do you want to pick a song that we can play right here, a few seconds of it? Sure. I mean, the first song of that playlist is Mitski's All-American Girl. Love which it. Which I think is very appropriate. Yeah, yeah, and and we are the Infatuation Podcast. Miski's a favorite one of ours, so let's play a little bit of Your Best American Girl by Miski. When the song's over, you'll know to get out of here. Let's get into a little bit of the characters. I mean, it's a character-driven book, yeah? So we got to talk about Ava, Chinese-American, Stanford grad, workaholic, corporate lawyer, as you said. Mm-hmm. Married a surgeon from UCSF and uh, <laughs> later on down at Stanford. So she's currently a stay-at-home mom for a, what would you call him? Difficult, <laughs> challenging, <Toddler>. powerful? <laughs> All of the above. Yeah, he's a he's a fussy little two year old, which uh, I had one of those. Not a boy, <laughs> but I had a girl. But they can be a challenge. So yeah, so she's she's a little bit at the end of her rope, I think. I'm guessing now. Now we don't know this about her for sure, but I'm guessing she was a straight A student that she never ditched class. Uh, mm-hmm. She probably was the kind of kid who would remind her teacher when homework was due. Is, is that? <laughs> Pretty safe assumption about Ava. I think that's right. I think that's right. She would do it quietly to not draw attention to herself, but she would nonetheless 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I teach AP Bio here in San Francisco, and and sometimes kids will walk in. I don't know if this is a stereotype. I mean, okay, well, it probably is, but they walk in and they look around to see how many Asian girls there are in the classroom, and they know that it's going to be a hard class when there's、oh, a、I、lot of Asian、that. girls. Yeah. yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Yes, I think you've nailed her down to it. Yeah, you've got okay, her. Okay, so she's one that you don't want to go up against on a on a math test. Yeah, she'll、anything. throw the curve. Yeah, she's the she's the curve breaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she she the best line from her is when she hears about this scheme from Winnie. She goes, but that's not fair. You know, she talks about the counterfeit bag. That's a classic. Like, wait, that's you can't how you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. She's a rule follower. Yeah, and and I I think Kirsten, you can kind of relate to this. She's kind of the golden child, right? She's the kid that every Asian parent wants, right? The the kid who gets into Stanford and corporate lawyer, marries a surgeon, has a、yeah. son. You know, she's、yeah. checking off all the boxes. Yeah, like the the model minority trophy child.、Mm-hmm. Um, and yet,、mm-hmm. what what do you think it was about her that made her consider even for a minute to go on the bad side of the law? Yeah, I mean, I think her child is a big part of it. You know, when I conceived of this character, I think you described her exactly right. She's done everything right. She's followed all the rules, and she believes very strongly in the system that if you do everything right, you get rewarded for it.、Um, and she's a character who's been in control of every aspect of her life, right? The way she looks, the person she married,、uh, even her the way she feels. Like she is someone who's incredible control of her emotions. And then she has this child who, as we discussed, is a little bit difficult. You know, he's having these tantrums, and、um, a lot of parents have told me this: that your child is the, the one thing that you can't. You know, from birth they have a will and a personality of their own. Absolutely.、Um, and I think for the first time, she isn't in control, and she cannot.、Um, Hide the way that her child behaves, and that is kind of what starts this questioning or this period of questioning.、Um, and then also, you know, her mother has just passed away, and so she's in a kind of a transitional period in her life. And so I think it's probably the, you know, I thought of it as the combination of those things that lead her to wonder: Am I on the right path? <laughs> Are is the、mm-hmm. system really to be trusted in? You know, questions that she perhaps never had to ask before. Yeah. Yeah. And so she meets. So she has a college roommate for a few months, I guess,、uh, named Winnie. How would you describe Winnie? You described her well in the book, but I think we kind of know this woman. So she's an international student. How how would you describe her?、Um, well, you know, Winnie is an international student who grew up in China, and so she has a confidence and a brashness、mm. that Ava doesn't have. Right? She comes from a large、mm. country where everybody looks like her, and the country is an economic powerhouse. Um, there is a certain sense of security that comes with that versus Ava, who grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, a kind of upper middle class white suburb where her whole life she was working to assimilate.、Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really interested in the kind of contrast between the two women because I think on the surface a lot of Americans would see them as exactly the same. They're、mm-hmm. Asian American, high achieving Stanford graduates. You know, they're yeah, yeah. dressed in a particular way, and I think you know the the kind of the way. That they play off of each other, and the and the and the large differences in their backgrounds、um, was、yeah. interesting to play with. It's kind of a tale of two Winnies too. Like when she first gets to Stanford, she she was a little more meek, right? She was a little、mm-hmm. less brash. I think so, but at the same time, you know, she didn't 
she wasn't maybe a, a completely fluent English speaker, but I still think she had a quiet confidence to her. Like she, she isn't afraid to ask questions, uh. for instance. Like she isn't afraid to look silly. She doesn't change the way she dresses to fit in with other Stanford students. Like she's pretty, like she's not loud and brash, but she has a sense of self that I think Ava takes a long time to find. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, we, there's a there's an interesting scene that I think a lot of us can relate to, Asian Americans can relate to, where Ava and her other college or suite mates are talking about Winnie after she had kind of left the school with a cloud of suspicion that mm-hmm. maybe she cheated on her SATs. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Well, we find out, but we don't know. And they're... Mm. They're pretty brutal, you know. They're making fun of her, the way she dressed, the way she talked, the way she was. Is that a, is that an experience that you had anything with as growing up here? I mean, you were kind of in between worlds, right? Because you're yeah, you're Singaporean immigrant, but you don't yes. have an accent, right? I am very much in. I am very much in between, kind of Ava and Winnie, which I think was one of the reasons it was so fun to write them, <laughs> is because yeah, yeah. you can immediately understand who they are, and yet you're different enough that you can imagine, you know, that your imagination can really run free. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't necessarily have that exact experience, but I think because I was an outsider in many ways, I was extremely observant and extremely aware of social mores. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a great position for a writer to be, you know, to yeah. be kind of inside and outside at the same time. And I, and I think those are the spaces that have always been the most fun for me to play in. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm not sure if you wrote it. I think you did write this intentionally, but I liked, I liked Winnie a lot. <laughs> like I really liked her. And I, I know there's no mm-hmm. right or wrong answer, but did you, were you consciously thinking of ways that you can make both Ava and Winnie likable, even though they're doing something pretty despicable? And yet they're likable. Yeah. No, I mean, I, mm. I like them too. But honestly, <laughs> I like all my characters because sure. just like I like all the kind of flawed people in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like you can think of like the people that you love and you don't love the You don't love the nicest person more than, the, right. you know, like it's not kind of how we rank our friends or our family members. I, I think that I took for granted that I would like them because they are, you know, I mean, they're mm-hmm. just... They always felt very whole and very complicated to me. Yeah. And, and I will say that, you know, in my previous books, I have had some more unlikable characters and readers often ask about them. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's the most unlikable characters that I hold the dearest. <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with kind of objective traits. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's more just like, you know, what do you relate to in them? What do you see in them? Um, what did you put of yourself in them? And what did you imagine? You know, it's much more complicated than just sort of whether they're good or bad people. Yeah. And that's what kind of made the book more fun. All these twists and turns and well, the unreliability and layers of the characters. Yeah. Very, very three-dimensional. Even we're going to talk a little bit about Boss Mac, right? <laughs> Even a guy like Boss Mac who, you know, there's a lot to not <laughs> like about Boss Mac, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I ended up liking him as well, right? <laughs> that, and I, I think that's different than if it was written, I think if it was written by, you know, a James Michener, you know, like <laughs> if you wrote a, a novel, like kind of a historical fiction kind of thing, you know, a lot of times they paint the 
you know, the Asian characters, the criminals or the masterminds, kind of a, you know, very narrow brush, but you were able to write a guy that, you know, we don't know all the things that he's done in his life. He's probably done some pretty bad things in life. And yet at the end, you know, you feel kind of bad for the guy. You feel for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think things are, anytime you dig in, it, things are more complicated than they seem. You know, like I, I referenced in the beginning, um, this image that I kept with me of going to this counterfeit, you know, this yeah. big shopping mall filled with counterfeits and then seeing the police station outside and the paradoxical nature of that. And I mean, I think that is kind of, my approach to everything, you know, yes, unequivocally selling counterfeits is illegal and a crime. And yet, if you went to this mall, you would see like all these <laughs> shops, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people make their living yeah. off of this industry. And yeah. they're not, you know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, you, it would be very broad to say like, they're all criminals, lock them all up. Like some of these people are, you know, salespeople who are working in the shopping mall and it's what they do for a small, you know, they don't make much money. Um, to them, it's probably no different than being a salesperson anywhere else. You know, like, it's just like the, the truth is always more complicated and hundreds of good, you know, millions of good people, quote unquote, good people are a part of this industry because it is a huge part of the economy in, yeah. in Guangzhou in particular in China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, let's talk about the plot a little bit. So we'll get a you described it in your summary, but it's a little more complicated than that, right? So it's a scheme where there's a factory in China that makes these bags. So so Winnie has a connection with Boss Mac and Boss Mac connects her with other people. Mm -hmm. And so Winnie's able to get her hands on these what what did you call them? One to one? Super fakes. Super, super fakes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so she's able to get her hands on these super fakes. And here's the scam. Now, it took me a minute to think about this, but I, I think I got it now. So the the scam bag is so when he goes has a buyer go into the store, like what like a Neiman Marcus or a handbag store, and buy the real deal mm -hmm. for $10,000. What does a bag cost? Four, sure, five, four thousand. Let's say $4,000. $4,000. And then she has someone like Ava or another, you know, a college kid or some someone else who looks the part, returns the fake bag to the store, <laughs> gets the full refund back, and then sells the real bag on eBay or some other place. That's exactly right. Is there a reason why they don't sell the fake bags on eBay? Because shoppers are extremely suspicious when you buy a bag uh, off the internet. And so it's well known that, you know, if you buy a bag on the internet, take it to authenticator and make sure it's the real thing uh, that you didn't get uh, cheated. But if you were to buy a bag straight from a department store like Neiman Marcus, you would likely trust the retailer and wouldn't bother to take that bag to get authenticated because, yeah. you know, you bought it at a reputable. Yeah. That's and the, the idea. And the salespeople aren't trained to find these counterfeits as well. I think that is the thing with super fakes. They are incredibly high quality. Uh, uh, even, you know, even I, you know, in the course of my research, even experts would say sometimes the only difference between a really, really good super fake and the real thing is a serial number embedded in the bag. Uh, and so, you know, yeah. if you don't have access to that database and those exact serial numbers, yeah. just looking at the bags would not necessarily mm -hmm. be enough evidence. Yeah. So, so Winnie needs people that look the part, like look like someone that can afford a $5,000 bag, can walk in there with a little attitude, a little swagger mm -hmm. and say, oh, it just doesn't match my outfit or it just didn't work for this occasion or whatever. So they can return. So this is a scam. And, 
at at one point they have hundreds of shoppers. How many <laughs> yes. how many shoppers do? You, so yeah, yeah, hundreds. I was fanned out across the country. Yeah, so they're making thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars off of this little scam. And so Ava gets sucked into this or pushed into this. I don't know how mm-hmm. exactly because she's at she's got some problems at home and she's got some issues and she wanted that control, like you said, over mm-hmm. her life. So how hard do you think? It just this is just your opinion. How hard do you think it was to push Ava over into this life? Uh, how hard do I think it was? I think she was primed for it. I think so. Yeah. Um, I think that she could only have gone into it incrementally, yeah. right? Like she tells tells herself, "I need. I'll do this this one time for in this specific circumstance because I need money." Yeah. And right, and and there's some very particular set of circumstances right, that need right. her to say yes. I think she believes she's only doing it once. But as we know, and we've seen in countless scam stories and uh, con artist stories, uh, once you do it once, it gets a little bit easier to do it again. Um, And then I think to me, too, that as she starts to see her old life more clearly, then she can start, you know, to see the kind of lies that her old life was built on. Then it becomes Mm. easier and easier to kind of justify the new life. Have you gotten any fans uh, write to you or, or just meet you and say that they would be considered, they would easily consider such a scam? Like, would they, <laughs> anyone say, like, you know, it wouldn't take me that much to go on to the dark side? Nobody has said it explicitly to me, but I do think that we all kind of justify our choices in big and small ways. You know, like there, I, I have seen a lot of, gotten a lot of comments on, oh, I would never buy uh-huh. uh, um, a counterfeit handbag because of so and so. And then other people will say, like, well, if you shop at HM, who do you think makes your clothes, right? If you shop at uh, these fast fashion, do you think those are ethical labor practices? And so then it starts to get very murky and all of us are kind of complicit in this capitalist system where yeah. certain people will inevitably get exploited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's hard to kind of throw stones, right? Because it's very difficult to be 100% consistent in your choices. Yeah. So we have a little bit of a plot twist halfway through. Uh, We find out that Ava is narrating this as a confession to a detective who who was involved in the sting. So the detective was signed up as a secret shopper and she she busted them. And so Ava's there. She turned herself in. But we find out that there was a little bit of a plot twist where she turned herself in, but she's at the same time trying to play for her freedom here. Did you base that on anything? Did you did you have any inspiration for that kind of mm-hmm. a plot twist? Um, I mean, I think it is a plot twist that we've seen before. I mean, Gone Girl, if any of you, yeah, if either yeah. of you have read that, is kind of the uh, most well-known example of you think you're reading one kind of book and then halfway through you realize that the diary that you've been reading is actually not what you would think of as a diary. Um, so that was one example I thought of. Um, I think Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff also does a similar kind of twist using point of view. Um, so yes, I did have some examples, but I think for me, this, the, the heart of the book was always about two women subverting the model minority myth. And so that was what the plot was meant to me. And, you know, 
Um, these are two women who um, used the model minority myth to commit a crime, and then they're going to flip it around and use the model minority myth to get out of it. Uh -huh. Right. And so that was kind of my idea from the start. And that was why yeah. that twist was so important was because you're kind of, you know, using they kind of weaponize the myth against the people who are uh, uh, holding it over them. Right. So, yeah. she, right. Yeah. He plays into the stereotypes the detective has of her. Did you know the ending going in? Did you know how it was going to end? I knew I knew they were going to get away with it. Because uh -huh. again, that was the ultimate subversion of the mm -hmm. myth, right? They had to, they had to get away with it. I don't think they'll get away with it forever, if we see that you know, if we uh -huh. were to follow them into the future. But uh, I knew the book would have to end that way because because of what I was trying to say about the myth. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now, am I crazy? Because when I was reading this, <laughs> you could. Mm -hmm. It's fine if you, if I am crazy, you can tell me this. I was reading this and I was kind of thinking like a Fight Club ending where Winnie is actually Ava's subconscious. What, oh, conscious. that's interesting. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that never yeah, crossed yeah. your mind? No, I, I, that particular twist did not cross my mind, but I did think of them as doppelgangers in this kind of, yeah, you know, like it is as if a uh, Winnie is, a part of Winnie is already inside of Ava and that Winnie needs to kind of unleash it. Right. And when he yeah. says that, I saw the darkness in Ava uh -huh. and I knew that she had this in her. And so I did think of that, you know, the fact that they're kind of doppelgangers um, and Winnie appears to be the kind of dark side yeah. of Ava. Um, so, no, I didn't think of it literally. But <laughs> yes, for sure, um, in terms of their dynamic, that was very much on my mind. Ah, OK, OK. A little validation. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, we had just interviewed Jean Yang for that American Born Chinese where there's that plot twist at the end where the the boy or the cousin that that Jin hated so much turned out to be, you know, who he hated. You know, he hated himself. So mm -hmm. I saw that a little bit of Winnie when, when Ava was was making fun of Winnie, I could see or her friends are making fun of of Winnie. I could see Ava kind of working it out in her head a little bit. Yeah. The things yeah. we hate in others are the things we hate most in yeah. ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the door is not at all open for a sequel, or is the door open a little bit for a sequel? <laughs> I'm, I'm not planning to write a sequel. Uh -huh. I think I, uh, I think I'm, I've lived a long time with these characters in this story, <laughs> and I'm ready to move on. Mm -hmm. But you know. We sold, uh, we, the, the, I was very lucky in that the television rights got optioned very, very early on. And the interesting thing is that in talking to my television team, they are always thinking about the future because, you know, they're, they want to make a show that goes for several series, uh, several seasons, sure. for instance. Yeah. And so with them, we were kind of kicking around ideas for where the book could go. And I think that that must have influenced my revision of the novel and uh, you know so even though i have no intention of writing a sequel i was thinking ahead which i think is, is a helpful thing when you're writing a book to know where you see the characters going because sure. that you know every novel is a snapshot in um, a character's life so you know i was thinking a lot about where they would go and i think that affected the way that i wrote yeah. the ending for yeah. instance but no i'm not planning to <laughs> no sequel <laughs> in the works yeah all right. Well, I think it's a little too early. And of course, you can't give away the ideas here. But I have some ideas for the cast for this show. <laughs> so just just indulge me. I know. Sure. Don't, okay. So I think the obvious one for Ava 
like the complete obvious one, Constance Wu. Right? <laughs> Is there name? Yeah, right? I have a, I, I can't even comment. Okay, okay. So, Emily, <laughs> you, you go. <laughs> Don't you think? Emily, right? Constance, yeah. About the right age, classy, but can mm-hmm. be a little sassy, can look <laughs> frazzled, you know, a frazzled mom. I can see that. Definitely see that. All right. And then here's my choice. I think the age, I think the age works. So, we're looking at late 30s, right? These women mm-hmm. are yeah. 20 years out of college. So, my choice for Winnie, Zhang Ji. I actually thought of her too. Isn't she I will great? Say. She yeah, I great. love her. And then also to have a mainland Chinese yeah, actor. I thought, of, but honestly, I cannot comment. On okay, this. no comment. Other no than that, the only because uh, it's early in the in yeah, the process, course, and yeah. my producers are talking to um, some wonderful actors, and uh-huh. so I just don't mm-hmm. want to jinx. But I yeah. will say, Zhang Zi uh, came to mind um, early, early on because I love her. <laughs> right. Here's another wild card. This is this one is totally offbeat, would never work. But we did a show with Chef Shirley Chung from Top Chef. Mm-hmm. I could see her being a Winnie too. She's got the brashness. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, right. Can you see it? I can see it. I can see it. I'm just telling she you. She has a sense of self, a strong sense of self. Very she, yeah, strong. I, I I loved her on Top Chef. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's very strong. Yeah. <laughs> so she's a good. She's one of my sister's best friends. So let me know if you need her contact information. <laughs> it would be a you. breakout role. For her. <laughs> it would. Yeah, it'd be a debut. Yeah. So she. I think she could do it. I think she could. Do it. Anyway, that'd be really fun to see that on the screen. Would that be surreal? That would be. Totally surreal, right? I think it's good to have some distance from. Yeah, you, know, you don't get your not, hopes up. Yeah. Well, not well, not to get your hopes up, and then also to think of it as something separate from uh-huh. the book. You know, it's a different beast. Like they have to do different. There, it's a different genre. I mean, they have to tell yeah. the story in a different way. And so, um, I like that I am in touch with the team, but not super involved, uh-huh. and okay. not at all involved in the adaptation. <laughs> Okay, okay. But it would be fun. <laughs> all right. So you've Kirsten, you've answered all of our hard questions. It is time for our lightning round. I think I'm gonna go first and then Emily's gonna do one here. Okay. All right, so don't don't think too hard. Just answer off the top of your head. Uh and you don't have to own any of these, but I'm gonna ask you a handbag question. All right, so what handbag would you recommend I grab if I'm just going out for lunch with my friends? Uh, this is a very specific answer. I would say the Hermes Eveline. It is a bag that actually makes an appearance in the book. Uh-huh. And Ava describes mm-hmm. it as very plain and she cannot understand why it costs so much. But personally, I love the bag. So. Uh, okay, <laughs> good to know. And then what recommendation for a handbag for my wife if she really wants to make a splash and make everyone around her jealous? Regardless of cost, what bag does she need to get? <laughs> To well, slap the, down. <laughs> the obvious choice would be a Birkin, but yeah. I'm going to go with a kind of insider. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For all you handbag lovers out there, not an insider, but I think Loewe is a Spanish brand that is under the radar, ah. very high quality. Uh, I mean, under the radar only amongst for people. normal people <laughs> yes <laughs> under the radar for normal people very beloved by handbag lovers um, yeah. i think it's g- still a good quality for the price <laughs> so one of those if you know you know yes. right you'll get some whispers <laughs> you'll get some glances okay great thanks what's your go-to karaoke song when you hit the ktv lounges in guangzhou I never went to a KTV oh, no. lounge in Guangzhou, but my go-to karaoke song here in the KTV lounges of San Francisco is uh, Crucify by Tori Amos. Oh. So for all you geriatric millennials out there, <laughs> we are the same age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. 
All right. So um, in San Francisco, there's you like you said, it's it's a little. It's not everybody who's into this, but if you wanted to go somewhere to do a little, maybe a little window shopping, a little people watching, maybe you could see a handbag or two. Do you have a spot <laughs> in the city that you like to go and maybe just walk around, grab a coffee, look at some handbags? What, where would you go? I think you'd have to be in Union Square because most of the people with the handbags are tourists. That uh, is one of the things I love about San Francisco is that is the least fashiony city <laughs> in the country, and I find that very liberating. I think it has made my love of fashion very pure because I'm not trying to impress anyone. I, you know, like in San Francisco, I feel like you can actually dress for yourself because people are so uh, casual, and, yeah. and you know, people are, it, it's casual. It's a uniform. Um, so, yeah, paradoxically, I love that about San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. I might say the ballet. I think the ballet is somewhere oh, where you can still yeah. see a handbag or two. You Maybe the ballet, yeah, more so. I, I don't go to the ballet much. I go to the symphony, and people are dressed quite low-key at the symphony. Yeah, yeah, that's true, too. And our last question is, who is your infatuation? It could be anyone in the Asian community, living or deceased, that you admire and look up to. Oh, Wow. That's such a big question for a lightning round. <laughs> um, I mean, I can think of so many authors that would come to mind. I'm, I have recency bias. So um, Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown, which uh -huh. just you know won the poster not so long ago, was a fantastic yeah. book. He's somebody I really admire. Katie Kitamura's Intimacies. Uh, I'm just naming books now, but these are authors <laughs> that I really admire. Katie Kitamura, Charles Yu. Um, and then some of my, my friends who are um, in the Bay Area and writing terrific novels, Vanessa Hua is one uh -huh. of them. Kathy Wang is one of them. R.O. Kwan. It is a privilege to feel in community with these writers, you know, like yeah. they are my colleagues. They are in many yeah. cases, my friends, how lucky, how lucky to be uh, in community with people who are really at the top of their field. Yeah. You know, and, and it's coming around. Cause like, I think if, I, I don't know if podcasts are really a thing 20 years ago, but 20 years ago, the idea of having a Asian author podcast, you know, there weren't a whole lot to go yeah. around but now i you know if i wanted to i could i could get an author every week from the authors. bay area you yeah. could get an author every week in the bay area yeah. yeah and you know a kind of a corollary to that is when i was talking to tv studios early on when we had interest in the book uh -huh. i was so sure that they would ask me to change the race of one of my characters uh -huh. because i couldn't think of a tv show that had two asian women right. as the leads you know yeah, and i was yeah. so prepared for this and i went into the first meeting thinking like what am i willing to accept you know maybe if they made it a a, a person of color who isn't asian like maybe latinx or african-american right. um, and then to a t every single team was like we are going to find you an asian american showrunner we're going to uh -huh. find you a Chinese, you know, Chinese American actors, you know, they uh -huh. down to the level of detail. Yeah. Of, uh, how well does Winnie need to speak Mandarin? Like we will find that. actor. Right. You know, it was that level. Right. And I know it's because of Crazy Rich Asians and how yeah. well that movie did. Mm -hmm. And that if we had gone on submission even a few months before that, it would not have. I, I can't yeah. imagine it would have been the same. Well, Kevin Kwan had to fight for it. I mean, exactly right. He had exactly to fight. Right. <laughs> Can Even you imagine? With these New York Times best-selling many times over yeah. books. He had to fight for it. Yeah. Uh, he fought the fight for us. You know. Yeah, and Jenny Han still deals with that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. her her shows are fantastically popular. 
Yeah. And yeah, you know, but like you said, though, now I think people are like, okay, Asians can carry this. You know? And there are, you know, bonafide movie stars Talent. from that movie that are, they need material and they're, yeah. and they have clout and we are so lucky to be. Yeah. Uh, and like, like you said, behind the camera, you know, you have directors, you have showrunners, you have producers that get it, you know, that are yeah. people of color themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good time. It's a good time to be an <laughs> author. And I think you touched on something here with this novel. You know, people like true crime, people like capers, people <laughs> like heists, you know, That's so uh, I'm not saying you have to write another heist, but, <laughs> you know, it, it is something that people like and people really resonate with. So, uh, Kirsten Chen, thank you so much for coming along and talking with us. Uh, I think that that does it for our episode, but we wanted to ask what's on tap for you. You got another book in the works. You got some <laughs> ideas floating around in there. I am working on another novel in the very early stages. It's another book that is completely different. It is set in the dirty cutthroat world of pediatric cancer research. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's set in a cancer lab at a Harvard-like institute. Um, and I describe it as succession, but with nerds. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So a little more, a little more research for you to do then. <laughs> always, always. It's never ending. That sounds like a lot of fun. And everyone out there, get a copy of Counterfeit from your local bookstore, uh, whether it's Green Apple here in the city or the one near you. Grab a copy of that. Uh, you can follow Kirsten at her Instagram at kirsten.chen or her website, kirstenchen.com. Uh, hey, Emily, thanks for coming along as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, always a pleasure. And yeah, let me know if you know any other famous Asian authors that you want to get on the podcast. Don't hold back. <laughs> for sure. Thank you. <laughs> but everyone out there, thanks so much for listening. Did you learn something? We hope you did. And as usual, you can always reach us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a follow over at Instagram or Facebook at The Infatuation Podcast. And, you know, I'll put all these details for you. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review if you would. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. And on behalf of Kirsten and Emily and myself, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Talk to you again soon. Bye. 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 Bye.